Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Laura Sol. Bringing us the latest science news this week are Mira Senthilingam and Helen Scales. Coming up, how the malaria parasite fools the immune system into thinking it's a friend. And it turns out that the most at-risk group of people, the children aged between six months and three years, might be suffering so much because their immune systems actually think that malaria is a friend and not a foe. Looks like an orchid, smells like a bee. This particular whiff attracts hornets, and they come looking for a bee to take away and feed to their growing young, but instead they actually find themselves bumbling along from one deceptive orchid to another, unwittingly pollinating them. And how corals could hold the answer to pain relief. Capnolin was originally discovered in 1974, so it's been around for a while, but only recently scientists have started to think about what uses it might have. And uh, interestingly enough, the molecule has a very different structure to other painkillers. Plus, Sarah Castaperi takes us back to this week in science history, which saw Felix Hoffman first synthesise aspirin for medical use in 1897. That's all on the way. So Helen, first of all, there's been a discovery for malaria, but unfortunately it's quite bad news. Yes, that's right. Scientists have uncovered new insight into malaria and it turns out that the most at-risk group of people, the children aged between six months and three years, might be suffering so much because their immune systems actually think that malaria is a friend and not a foe and something to be attacked. Now, malaria, as we know, is a really awful, deadly disease. It affects around 500 million people every year and sub-Saharan Africa is the worst area for that and that has an annual death toll of around a million people every year. And like I said, it's those kids between six months and three years that are affected the most and it was that age-related statistic that was the focus of this study in the journal PLOS Medicine by Christopher King from Case Western Reserve University and his colleagues. Now how did they go about studying why children of that particular age range are most vulnerable? Well, the research team followed up 586 babies born in Kenya from their birth up until their third birthday. They took samples of umbilical cord blood from the babies and then they also took some blood samples from their mothers as well. Now, as we might expect, some of the mothers were infected with malaria at the time of the delivery. And King and the team suspected that this could expose the babies to products made by the malaria parasites while they're still in the womb. And that could cause the baby's immune system to develop tolerance to malaria. It's a process by which the immune system learns what to ignore when we're first born and what it should launch an attack on. Did the researchers test out their idea of babies having this early immunity to malaria? Well, that's right, they did indeed. They mixed malaria antigens with white blood cells from some of the babies that had mothers that were infected uh, with malaria and they found that the cells reacted only very weakly to that malarial signal. And then babies whose mothers weren't infected showed a very strong reaction and they pumped out lots of inflammatory hormones. Now, this suggests basically that the mothers that were infected Infected with malaria were passing a trigger to tolerate the malaria in their babies, which means that they ignore it rather than attack it. So presumably this finding will have implications for the development of a much-needed malaria vaccine. That's right. A vaccine is really the holy grail that we're after to try and deal with this terrible disease. And since it seems that babies get antibodies from their mother, which makes them protected from malaria for the first six months of life, they're OK during that time. And then it's after then that the baby becomes much more vulnerable. And if their immune system is already thinking that malaria is a friend rather than a foe because of what it's been exposed to in the womb, it then means that vaccines will really have to tackle this reprogramming error if we're going to make them work. So hopefully this will give us a better idea of a way forward to try to make a vaccine that's really going to work and tackle that most vulnerable age range between six months and three years. 
Okay, and while moving from parasites to flowers, and more specifically orchids, which it seems are behaving like bees. Yes, orchids living on Hainan Island in China have evolved to smell like upset bees. Now that might sound rather bizarre, except that this particular whiff attracts hornets, and they come looking for a bee to take away and feed to their growing young. But instead, they actually find themselves bumbling along from one deceptive orchid to another, unwittingly pollinating them. Now, never trust an orchid. That's definitely a piece of advice if you were an insect in this world, because in total, around one third of the thirty thousand orchid species that attract pollinating insects do so without actually giving them any reward of pollen or nectar, which is what the insects usually think they're coming to find. But most of the orchids actually mimic the smell of other flowers that do have nectar and pollen, and some of them make themselves smell like potential. Insect mates, so the insects come along thinking that they're going to find themselves a mate, and they actually try and have sex with the orchids. Now, this study in the journal Current Biology was by a team from the University of Ulm in Germany, and they revealed for the first time that an orchid tricks pollinators into coming to do its pollinating job because they think they're going to find food, and not just pollen or nectar, but actually other animals that they want to eat themselves. So, how do we know that the hornets are looking for food when they fly to the orchids? Well, the researchers spent over 120 hours in the wild watching this particular orchid called Dendrobium sinensis, and、uh, they saw that it's mostly hornets that visited them. And in fact, this is confirming for the first time that it is hornets that are pollinating this particular species of orchid. But instead of landing on the flowers and pausing for a moment, as most pollinators do, the hornets pounced on the red centre of these flowers. They behave very similarly when they're actually attacking prey. They then took the hornets in. To flight cages in the lab, and found that they were just as likely to visit the real orchids as they were an odorless European honeybee dummy that was injected with an extract of the flower, while they were ignoring dummy bees that hadn't been had a spritz of the flower scent. So, what is the chemical in the flower scent that's attracting the hornets? Well, the team then analysed the chemical makeup of the flower scent and discovered a volatile chemical called 11-ecosenonol, and that's exactly the same compound that makes up most of、um, the chemical that's released by Asian and European honeybees when they're alarmed. Now, when hornets in the lab were given a choice between visiting an intact flower or a synthetic mix of the main chemicals identified in the scent of the flower, they really had no preference at all, showing that really it probably was. That smell that was attracting the hornets to those those flowers, and、uh, since the hornets are known to prey on honeybees, it makes perfect sense that、uh, they fly to the orchids, thinking that they're going to find food in the shape of a honeybee. And it's really just amazing what plants get up to, co-opting the services of animals in the most ingenious ways. Yes, that's very clever indeed. Now, also this week, moving down into our soils now, where mapping is in urgent need. Good quality, healthy soil is the stuff that underpins healthy human populations. It ensures we have enough to eat, essentially, and they also play a vital role in regulating climate. But if we get it wrong, it can spell disaster. And now, a group of scientists, publishing in the journal Science, have highlighted the urgent need to create a new map of the world's soils using the very latest digital, mobile, and online technology to assess the state of the dirt beneath our feet. May initially seem a bit excessive, but it could provide a crucial. Way of managing soils in particular areas and preventing their degradation, and ultimately ensuring food security. 
But what is a soil map and why do we need a new one? Well, soil maps essentially show the types and properties of soils in different areas, how much water they can hold, what they're made up of, and all sorts of information that's vital for the effective use of those soils. So irrigation, for example, using that limited resource of fresh water, and it's key that we use the right amount of irrigation in particular areas. So, for example, in the central north China plain, more water is often pumped into the fields than the soil can actually hold, and that wastes so much of that precious water. Now, the first world soil map was made by the UN Food and Agricultural Organisation back in 1981 and it's been put to all sorts of really important uses including studies of climate change, food production and land degradation. But the problem is it's very low resolution and it doesn't include some types of really important information about soil properties that we're now interested in in the 21st century. So what are these scientists saying we should be doing now? Well, this is a policy forum paper in the in science, like I said, and it's calling for international collaboration to compile a detailed three-dimensional soil map that would be freely available over the internet to all sorts of use, users, and that includes scientists, land use planners and policymakers, all sorts of people. And the foundations have already been laid for this by the globalsoilmap.net project. And that began in 2006 in response to policymakers who were always trying to answer questions and not being able to find answers to things like how much carbon is locked up in the soil and how much is emitted in particular areas. And at the moment, only around one third of the world's ice-free land have got soil maps already available at a one to one million scale or finer. So there's an awful lot more information that needs to be collected, as well as all the existing information needs to be brought together and made really accessible to different users. And to make a digital soil map essentially involves going out to survey particular areas for properties that you're interested in, and then extrapolating that to a wider area because you can't actually go and sample everywhere. And uh, then you can collect information about the physical and biological components of the soil and then put that together with geographical information about farming systems, about poverty levels, um, road densities and all sorts of other human factors. And the hope is that once all this information has been gathered and brought together in a single resource, it can then be used to make recommendations on how soils in particular areas should be used and then changes over time can also be monitored. And ultimately the aim is to reverse soil degradation and, like I say, improve food security and ultimately people's livelihoods. And finally for this week, the ocean is a source of pain relief. Yes, there are all sorts of wonderful things we get from the ocean and now it seems a new type of painkiller could be on the list of things we found there too. And it comes from a type of soft coral living on Green Island and that's just a small island off the coast of Taiwan. And Dr Sihong and colleagues from the National Sun Yat-sen University in China have a paper in the British Journal of Pharmacology and in it they test a compound called capnelline and uh, that's found inside this Kenyan tree coral, Capnella imbricata and uh, they look a little bit like little white trees that live on coral reefs and this molecule that they found inside it could provide a vital step towards combating neuropathic pain. But what is neuropathic pain? Well, people with neuropathic pain suffer from intense pain from a stimulus that would normally cause no effect at all or maybe just mild discomfort, like a cold draught. And it can affect up to one in 100 people in the UK alone. And it's thought to be maybe associated with the nerve damage that happens when you have diabetes sometimes. And standard painkillers like aspirin really have no help at all, very little help for these types of conditions. And inflammation of the nervous system seems to play an important role in causing neuropathic pain. 
And it's by activating the cells that surround nerve cells, and they're cells called microglia and astrocytes. And when they are active, they essentially magnify pain signals travelling along the nerves, making the pain sensation feel even more intense. And how do we know this new compound will help it? Well, capnolin was originally discovered in 1974, so it's been around for a while, but only recently scientists have started to think about what uses it might have. And uh, interestingly enough, the molecule has a very different structure to other painkillers. And the research team essentially went and tested capnolin both on isolated nerve cells um, and also on laboratory rats that have neuropathic pain. And they found that it both reduced that pain-related activity in the nerve cells, that, that amplification of pain signals in those isolated nerve cells. And the rats that have that pain seem to show fewer pain responses when they were given doses of the compound. Why would a soft coral make a compound that works as a painkiller in mammals? Well, life on a coral reef is tough and competitive. There's so many species living in close proximity to each other and many of them have evolved complex chemical defences to try and give them the upper hand. And it just so happens that some of those active chemicals have effects on other types of animals as well and it's the complexity of those molecules that we're interested in and new ways of, of finding activity in chemicals. And we found all sorts of things on places like coral reefs already. We found anti-cancer treatments, sunscreens and in fact um, AZT the treatment for HIV was originally found in a type of Caribbean sponge so there's all sorts of things out there almost waiting for us to to try and find them and and use those molecules in the natural world and this for this particular chemical it's early days but the discovery does offer some long-term hope hopefully for those sufferers of neuropathic pain and it points away towards a new generation of painkillers that are inspired by the sea. Thank you very much, Helen. Naked scientist Helen Scales there, bringing us the latest from the world of science this week. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. Now Sarah Castor-Perry looks back to 1897, when Felix Hoffman first synthesised one of the world's most widely used painkillers, aspirin. This week in science history saw in 1897... Felix Hoffman first synthesised a stable form of acetyl salicylic acid for medical use, better known as aspirin. Aspirin, or acetyl salicylic acid, is a salicylate drug that, as well as its best-known effect as an analgesic to reduce aches and pains, can also be used as an antipyretic to control fever and as an anti-inflammatory to reduce inflammation. It also has the effect of making the blood less likely to clot, known as anticoagulation. It was the first non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug to be discovered, another example being ibuprofen, and it had the huge benefits of reducing pain without impairing consciousness, and it was not addictive, unlike opiate painkillers such as laudanum. Salicylate-based medicines derived from plants like meadowsweet and willow bark had already been in use for over 3,500 years by the 19th century to reduce aches and pains and fever. In fact, the name salicylic acid comes from the Latin name for the willow tree, Salix. In the 1820s and 30s, chemists in Italy and Germany managed to purify the active chemical found in these plants, salicylic acid. The medicinal use of this grew in the mid-1800s, but it did have several drawbacks, including the fact that it caused stomach pain, ulcers and even stomach bleeding. Around this time, an industry began to grow in Germany to investigate medicines that could be derived from cloth dyes made from coal tar, Surprising as it might sound, given the starting point of coal tar, a lot of compounds were found that could be used to reduce fever and pain. A German dye firm called Friedrich Bayer and Company began to expand to investigate medicines further, seeing that there was money to be made. 
It was this company that Hoffman joined as a young man in 1894 to work with two chemists called Eichengrün and Dreser. In 1897, Eichengrün instructed Hoffman to find an alternative form of salicylic acid that would be less irritating to the stomach, but would still produce anti-fever and pain effects. In his lab book entry for the 10th of October 1897, Hoffman declared that he had synthesised a pure form of acetyl salicylic acid by refluxing salicylic acid with acetyl anhydride. This ended up producing a much purer and more stable form of acetyl salicylic acid than had been produced before using other techniques. Clinical trials suggested it was just as effective as salicylic acid without many of the unpleasant side effects. However, it was not until 1899 that the name aspirin was decided on and that Bayer began producing it for use as a prescription drug. It was not available over the counter until after the turn of the century. The popularity of aspirin grew and grew in the first few decades of the 20th century, especially after its widespread and successful use in controlling pain and fever in victims of the 1918 flu pandemic. However, its use by the public around the world was reduced on the introduction of paracetamol in 1956 and ibuprofen in 1969. Alarming evidence that it might cause Ray's syndrome in children, a potentially fatal disease involving organ failure, after being used to treat them for chickenpox, also decreased its popularity. It is now advised not to be given to children under 16. Its anticoagulant effects were shown in the 1970s, and after this, aspirin came back into widespread use and is still in use today as a preventative measure against strokes and heart attacks by reducing the likelihood of a blood clot. With a discovery of such magnitude, and with money and fame to be had, there is unsurprisingly rather a lot of controversy surrounding the discovery of aspirin. Eichengrün released a paper in 1949, three years after Hoffman's death, arguing that he should be credited with the discovery of aspirin and that Hoffman had just been following his instructions. This account of events was not supported until 1999, when a researcher at Strathclyde University examined the case and came out in support of Eichengrün. Bayer, the pharmaceutical company that Hoffman and Eichengrün had been working for at the time, dismissed the findings and stood behind Hoffman. As of 2004, the controversy is still unresolved. The events that led to the production and widespread use of aspirin are an important chapter in the history of medicine. It was the first modern pain-killing drug that could be used without affecting a person's day-to-day activities and has brought relief to millions of people over the years. That's all we have time for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which featured Mira Senthilingam and Helen Scales. It was produced by me, Laura Sol. If you enjoyed this news flash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where every week we bring you the latest in science news, along with interviews, answers to your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try at home. Join us on the web at thenakedscientist.com, and we'll be back with another roundup next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.